Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, wherever you may be, death will catch up with you, even if you are in high castles. This is Allah's sunnah in his creation. Rich, poor, white, black, clever, foolish, Muslim, non-Muslim, all must leave through that portal. The country at the moment is reflecting upon the late Queen's life and her many achievements, which have now come to an end. Opening hospitals, foreign tours, diplomatic business connections, useful for the economy, useful for the nation's sense of continuity with its history. Muslims too, holding the same passports. One finds have a strange sympathy. I find this interesting. Statistically, Muslims in the UK, according to the opinion polls, are more likely to be monarchists than uh, Christians. Hmm. Ethnic minorities by and large love the royal family. Even if I travel, I go to Pakistan and places and I find that certainly the older generation, they really loved the queen and the English royal thing. Interesting. We might want to reflect on this particular affection. And in many ways, we scratch our heads when we think about the larger picture. After all, is it not the prophetic way not to be in a high castle? Is it not the prophetic way not to believe in aristocracy and a hierarchy and a class system, but to be equal? Is it not the prophetic way that in the mosque of the Holy Prophet wasallam, all were equal, difference was only with taqwa? And is it not the case that when we look back further in the history of the royals, we find scenes that understandably and legitimately cause Muslims and others to frown. One of the very first pieces of color cinematography from 1911, the Imperial Durbar in Delhi. 50,000 soldiers marching triumphantly where the great mogul had once ruled. And there underneath a great palanquin surrounded by golden elephants and all of the trappings of the Raj, King George V and Queen Mary. And one by one, the Indian princes and the Nawabs and the Rajas all come up and bow their heads. Which Muslim is not uncomfortable when he sees Mir Osman Ali Khan, the Nizam of Hyderabad, bowing his head before them. Well, George V is wearing the imperial crown with its 6,200 diamonds in a land of poverty. Of course, we, Hindus as well, any Indian, most people today are uncomfortable with that scene. There has always been a shadow side. But still, we know that in our history too, the history of Muslims, we have had those high castles we have had those palanquins and those golden elephants. We have had our peacock thrones, the great mogul, the Safavid Shah, the Sultan of the Ottoman Emperor. Was that not also 
monarchy. Let us not think that we are not the same as others in this. But also that it can have its positive side. It doesn't look prophetic, but it can be positive. You can visit the palace of the Bani Umayyah in Spain. The Umayyad king, Caliph Abdurrahman III, built this absolutely enormous establishment on the hills overlooking the Wadi al-Kabir, probably the greatest palace in the world. And to it would come the unwashed barbarian kings of northern Europe. And there they would bow their heads, completely dazzled by the splendor and the gold and the bling of this incomparable building, the likes of which they'd never seen in their drafty stone castles far to the north. And it had its value. It could remind them of the power of the Muslims. It could remind them of their duty to show respect. It has its place. Let's also, at this time, recall a beloved incident in the seerah of the Chosen One, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's the fifth year of the revelation. The persecution by Quraysh of the small band of believers is becoming more and more intense. And there seems to be no way out. But there is. فَلَمَّا رَأَى رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ مَا يُصِيبُ أَصْحَابَهُ مِنَ الْبَلَاءِ When the Holy Prophet saw the afflictions that were descending upon his companions, قال لهم لَوْ خَرَجْتُمْ إِلَىٰ أَرْضِ الْحَبَشَةِ فَإِنَّ عَلَيْهَا مَلِكًا لَا يُظْلَمُ عِنْدَهُ أَحَدٍ Why do you not travel? to the land of Abyssinia, because it is ruled by a king who wrongs nobody. It is a land of faithfulness. And so they go. This is the very first hijrah. And some great ones go. Names known to all. Abdurrahman bin Auf, he goes. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. Mus'ab ibn Umair. Az-Zubayr ibn al-Awwam. So many go, that faithful band. And indeed, they do find a refuge. They are asylum seekers, refugees. فَلَمَّا رَأَتْ قُرَيْشٌ أَنَّ أَصْحَابَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ قَدْ سَكِنُوا وَطْمَأَنُوا وَوَجَدُوا بِأَرْضِ الْحَبَشَ دَارًا وَقَرَارًا when Quraysh saw that the companions of the Holy Prophet had traveled and they found in the land of Ethiopia a place to stay and a place of security, they gathered and took counsel amongst themselves. Send to them a delegation of two strong, intelligent men. They're thinking in terms of power in terms of diplomacy, not in terms of virtue, not in terms of the virtue of giving people protection. They're thinking in terms of the trade deals that they've always done with the Ethiopians. And so they send two men, one of whom is, of course, Sayyidina Amr ibn al-As, who becomes one of the truly great Sahaba, highly intelligent man, chosen for this job. And then they go, 
and they appear before the king and having given everybody gifts not just the king but all of his bishops all of his bishops and his patriarchs they're all given gifts just to soften them up and then they say people who have come to you who are from our people who are foolish youth they've left the deen the religion of their people and they haven't entered your religion and so the Najashi the good king of Ethiopia sends for the Sahaba and there they are and you can imagine the beauty of their faces simple dress in the face of the majesty of court ceremonial simple white clothes shining faces they've just come from the prophetic presence you can imagine the presence that they represented and so he asks them who are you? Why have you abandoned your religion? Why have you abandoned your religion? And not come into my religion or into the religion of any of the other peoples. This is strange to him. These seem like amazing, illuminous people, like angels, and yet they don't follow anything that he has ever heard of. He realizes this is a new situation. This is unfamiliar. And so Ja'far, he speaks, radiallahu an. And from that time, it has been the tradition in the Sharia, if you appoint a spokesman or an ambassador, that that person should be physically beautiful and well-spoken. Ja'far al-Tayyar was famous for the beauty of his appearance. And he says, Ayyuh al-Malik, O king, of course, is respectful. Inna kunna qawman ahla jahiliya. We were a people of jahiliyyah, of ignorance. We were people who used to worship idols, who paid no attention to the duties of family, who paid no attention to the neighbor, who used to eat carrion. And then Allah sent to us a messenger from ourselves. And he told us, Worship Allah alone. Be good to neighbors. Be good to family. And establish This is their speech and their explanation to the king. And then the king says, have you got with you something of what he brought, this, this alleged revelation? He said, yes. And the king says, recite it to me. And then Ja'far comes forward and recites the beginning of Surah Maryam. Dhikru rahmati rabbika abdahu zakariya Id nada rabbahu nida'an khafiyya قال رب إني وهن العزم مني واشتعل رأس شيبا 
Now these people did know Arabic. Even if you don't know Arabic, this is like a symphony. Surat Maryam, with its internal rhythms and its rhyme and its syncopation, not poetry, a million times higher than poetry. Extraordinary. You see the wisdom of those people. He is choosing that part of the Qur'an that explains what they have in common, but that also unabashedly indicates the difference. And he ends the recitation. وَالْمَلِكُ يَبْكِي يَدْحَلُّ لِحْيَةُ The king is weeping so much after hearing these words that his beard is wet. وَبَكَتِ الْأَسَاقِفَةِ And the bishops are also weeping so that their books, their gospels, became damp. And the king says, And he says, you can go. I will not deliver you to them. This and what Jesus brought are from the same light. Amr ibn al-As, angry about this, he's failed. The next day they go back. They want round two. They're not going to give up. And he says to his companion, I will deal the killer blow tomorrow. I shall tell the king that these people say that Isa, Jesus, upon him be peace, is a slave. Not a king in that worldview. You see how Quraysh is thinking. It's all class. It's all about status. It's all about prestige. Truth is nowhere in sight. Why have the Muslims done wrong? Because they've left the religion of their people. It's a tribal thing. Truth, argument, haq, not of interest. Tribe, money, diplomacy, status. This is the language of Quraysh. The language of the Sahaba is the light that comes from their faces. And so the next day, they all reassemble. The bishops and the patriarchs and the priests and the king in the middle and Amr ibn al-As makes this accusation. These people say that Jesus is a slave. And the king says to Ja'far, what do you say? And he says, Subhanallah. This is a terrifying situation. And yet he doesn't compromise. The list of titles that come from the Quran about Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam long. But he begins with the Abd. He's not going to hide that. Yes, he is Allah's slave and his messenger. And he is a spirit from him and a word which he cast unto Mary the Blessed Virgin. And the Najashi, this righteous king, in this Ard Sidq, as the Holy Prophet declares it, the land of Habasha, hears this and sees who they are and somehow reads their hearts. And then he goes forward. It's a famous scene. He somehow hits the ground. And he takes a staff, a stick. And he 
makes a division, draws a line, places a stick on the ground, the interpreters have different explanations of what's going on. Maybe it's some kind of scepter. He's putting it on the ground to separate him from the Muslims, and he says, inna ladi baynakum, or baynana, mithla that which is between us, on which we differ, is like this. In other words, not much. And the bishops start to snort. And the king says, Despite your snorting, Leave. You are at peace and safe in my land. This is part of the beauty of Islam. So many simple people, fearful people say, it's them and us. All Muslims are angels. All unbelievers are zombies, demons, monsters, uh, a binary view. No, this is not the reality of the world. The reality of the Holy Quran is one of generosity, while not compromising with truth. Surat Maryam, such beauty. I read it to my students sometimes. It blows them away. It outgospels the gospels, you could say. It's just more amazing. Once I showed a famous film about Surat Maryam, an Iranian film, to a group of Catholic ladies in Wales. By the time it was halfway through, they were in tears. Subhanallah. So that's wisdom. That is also tolerance that doesn't compromise. Let's learn from that. Some Muslims don't like these stories from the seerah. They sound too tolerant and inclusive, and that's not what they want. You've heard the expression, for some people, might is right. Well, a similar mistake is to say tight is right. In other words, the narrow you are, the more taqwa you have. The most fierce, narrow, xenophobic interpretation you can find that makes you a really special, uncompromising Muslim. No, it's not the message of the seerah. When the delegation of Najran come to negotiate with the Holy Prophet years later in Medina when he is the powerful one and they're cutting a deal, they come in their gold and their brocade and, and he doesn't like this. He asks them to change into simpler clothes. And when they do, he allows them to pray, to do their mass or whatever it is, in his mosque. A lot of Muslims fidget, tight Muslims, those who have this terrible modern error of thinking narrowness is authentic. No. Authenticity, truth, hospitality, without any compromise is what is authentic. So yes, when we look at the life of Queen Elizabeth, the seerah is telling us to see what there is there that is noble. The nafs wants to see faults, the ruh wants to see beauty. We can judge ourselves by our reaction to these events. And now we are facing a new reign, King Charles III. We look ahead. The monarch still has a significant role in England in terms of setting the terms of the debate affronting Britain to the world. And it is as well to remember uh, that he may well not turn out to be the Najashi, but still, 
he has gone out of his way to make positive remarks about Islam. Everybody knows this. He likes Islamic gardens, he likes Islamic art, he likes Islamic textiles. And he came to Cambridge years ago, not an official visit. He wanted to talk about the Quran. There's a lot of sense in the Quran, I heard him say. He could have talked about anything else in the university, but that was what was interesting to him. God has taken him on this particular journey that overcomes this stupid binary, East and West, Muslim, non-Muslim, immigrant, all of that. He wants to overcome it, and that deserves some credit. Why should we not give him credit for thinking outside the box, for courting controversy? But he does it. Ten years ago, the Daily Mail got very angry when it turned out that Prince Charles had been learning Arabic. Why did he want to learn Arabic? Just so he could go to the Gulf and sell typhoon fighters or something? No, he said it was so that he could understand the Qur'an. How many people in Parliament would do that? There's something about lineage and that makes people think about deeper, timeless things. So what I want to do at the end of the khutbah is just to read some words uh, by King Charles. We have to get used to that. That whether we're monarchists or not monarchists or care about this or not, it does matter that in a time of mounting Islamophobia, uh, there are some people who wish to stand with us. Let us be not tight Muslims, paranoid, fearful, suspicious. Let us recognize open-heartedness with an open-heartedness of our own. This is what he says about Islam and the West. I believe wholeheartedly that the links between these two worlds matter more today than ever before, because the degree of misunderstanding between the Islamic and Western worlds remains dangerously high, and because the need for the two to live and work together in our increasingly interdependent world has never been greater. It is odd in many ways that misunderstandings between Islam and the West should persist. For that which binds our two worlds together is so much more powerful than that which divides us. Muslims, Christians, and Jews are all peoples of the book. Islam and Christianity share a common monotheistic vision, a belief in one divine God, in the transience of our earthly life, in our accountability for our actions, and in the assurance of life to come. We share many key values in common, respect for knowledge, for justice, compassion towards the poor and underprivileged, the importance of family life, respect for parents. Our two worlds have so often seen that past in contradictory ways. To Western school children, the 200 years of the Crusades are traditionally seen as a series of heroic, chivalrous exploits in which the kings, knights, princes, and children of Europe tried to wrest Jerusalem from the wicked Muslim infidel. To Muslims, the Crusades were an episode of great cruelty and terrible plunder, of Western infidel soldiers of fortune and horrific atrocities, perhaps exemplified best by the massacres committed by the Crusaders when, in 1099, they took back Jerusalem, the third holiest city in Islam. For us in the West, 1492 speaks of human endeavor and new horizons, of Columbus and the discovery of the Americas. To Muslims, 1492 is a year of tragedy. The year Granada fell to Ferdinand and Isabella. 
signifying the end of eight centuries of Muslim civilization in Europe. We in the West need also to understand the Islamic world's view of us. There is nothing to be gained and much harm to be done by refusing to comprehend the extent to which many people in the Islamic world genuinely fear our own Western materialism and mass culture as a deadly challenge to their Islamic culture and way of life. Some of us may think the material trappings of Western society which we've exported to the Islamic world, television, fast food, and the electronic gadgets of our everyday lives are a modernizing self-evidently good influence. But we'd fall into the trap of terrible arrogance if we confuse modernity in other countries with their becoming more like us. The fact is that our form of materialism can be offensive to devout, to devout Muslims, and I do not just mean the extremists among them. We must understand that reaction, just as the West's attitude to some of the more rigorous aspects of Islamic life needs to be understood in the Islamic world. More than this, Islam can teach us today a way of understanding and living in the world which Christianity itself is the poorer for having lost. At the heart of Islam is its preservation of an integral view of the universe. Islam, like Buddhism and Hinduism, refuses to separate man and nature, religion and science, man and matter, and has preserved a metaphysical and unified view of ourselves and the world around us. It is a sad fact, I believe, that in so many ways the external world we've created in the last few hundred years has come to reflect our own divided and confused inner state. Western civilization has become increasingly acquisitive and exploitative in defiance of our environmental responsibilities. This crucial sense of oneness and trusteeship of the vital sacramental and spiritual character of the world about us is surely something important we can relearn from Islam. We will see if once he has been crowned, he can continue in this pro-Islamic voice or whether he will just disappear into the role. But the heart is clearly sympathetic. And also the heart that loves nature. This is the eco-mosque representing Islam's insistence on our role as khulafa, Allah's custodians, representatives, guardians of the beauties of creation, which are not just there to keep us fed and watered, but to remind us of their beautiful creator and source. He too has been a champion of environmentalism and was such long before it became fashionable. So let us be optimistic. Let us pray for guidance for him and for his family and for everyone. And inshallah, may this be a time of reconciliation, of better understanding of the religion of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with its beautiful ease and inclusion and love for nature and love for family and love for all good things. May this be a new beginning, inshallah. May we have that intention. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم ولسائر المسلمين إنه هو الغفور الرحيم.